Hi, it's Raghu, and I'm back with Nick Polizzi. Nick, welcome to Mind Rolling. Thank you. I'm happy to be here again. Again, yes. Nick, uh, for those of you who don't remember, uh, Nick created a wonderful movie called Sacred Science, and uh, we did a podcast around that, which was taking people to be healed down into uh, the Amazon rainforest with very, very incredible beings, shaman that he worked with, and also using ayahuasca as part of this in a very ceremonial way, not in kind of the way, I guess I look a little bit askance at what some of the stuff that goes on here in the West or in, the, in, in, in America around the use of this particular drug. Um, not... Uh, yeah, it's judgmental and it's not real. It's my projection. I just, but everybody, I just came back from India, so bear with me on all of this, okay? Uh, but there is a way that we had a chat last time about your own relationship with ayahuasca hmm. with, that I thought was very, very uh, um, down to earth and practical about uh, the perspective that one can take with such a very powerful uh, transformative ethne engine so uh, there there's a part you know there is one part in the book uh, as I said uh, please do everybody go to the podcast that Nick and I did about a year ago and uh, check that out because it's an in-depth uh, reading of uh, of his experience and, and putting that whole thing together but there uh, Let's see. There is something here that I did pick up in the book that I really liked, and it's 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 towards the end of the book, Nick. And you're kind of asking yourself, why why do I even sit in ceremony, just walking these trails, bathing in these waterfalls and streams, and having the the uh, Mapacho River itself close by are profoundly affecting my psyche. Heck, I even had one of the most meaningful transformations of my life last night, just getting here. <laughs> I kind of can relate with that. And you say, some tribes don't even let non-apprentices drink ayahuasca. Maybe they're right. This medicine isn't for the unanointed. Just give me your whole, your own personal view around the use of uh, ayahuasca and, and certainly uh, where there's, uh, it's like everything can be used for uh, real transformation and perhaps being used to escape something. Talk about it from your point of view. Sure. So I think people, especially in my line of work, doing covering the kind of subject matter that we tend to cover, they assume that I sit in many ayahuasca ceremonies. Uh, you know, they think that I'm in a weekend ceremony. I mean, I, I was living in the Bay Area for a while, and there's like, you know, weekend ceremonies are kind of the thing now. You just kind of go up and, and do those. Um, I do, I work with ayahuasca once a year max. In fact, it's been a year and a half since I last sat in an ayahuasca ceremony. I take it very seriously. It's not something that I that I do recreationally, and I don't think it's something that should be done on a um, regular basis. Now, obviously, everybody's different, but I haven't seen through all my uh, all the friends I have and contacts I have who do do it on a regular basis. I haven't seen it producing incredible results in their life. Um, there's a, a shaman that I hang out with. He's a pampa misayok, which is um, a certain type of um, of shaman in the high Andes, uh, in the Osangate region, in the Cairo culture. His name is Sebastian, and he he has a really amazing way of looking at the plants. Uh, you know, he just started working with ayahuasca. It's very it's very um, rare for someone like him 
um, to even be working with ayahuasca because of the region that region that he's from. But he's approached plant medicines and entheogens um, the way that his entire culture does, which is with deep respect with patience. And so, you know, he's 50 something. And I think it's been a lifetime of him asking permission, as he would put it. He asks permission of the apus, of the mountain spirits to kind of, you know, work with these plants. And ultimately, after a long time, a decade or two of like asking permission, then a lot of times, you know, someone in these high shamanic roles will start working with these plants but it's definitely not something that's dove into it's not something that everybody does and he says about these westerners who come down to his country and work with ayahuasca he's like most of these people don't even know how to take care of a house plant but they come home they come down here and they want they want to walk knock on the door of the president you know the white house of all of all plant medicines and expect to get a meeting um and so he's like, it just doesn't make any sense to us. It's, it's reckless. It's not something that we do. And in many ways it can be hazardous, um, for an individual just to, you know, go from being, um, a New York city dweller, like I was for a very long time, uh, just to walk down into the jungle and start, you know, working with these plants and, you know, expecting that their life is going to, is going to, you know, not be turned on its ear. Yeah. Yeah. Healthy attitude. For sure, for sure. Uh, yeah, and that doesn't just, obviously we're talking about plant medicine right here, uh, but it also applies to the kind of people that we meet in different uh, uh, situations, especially when we go on these, what's in pilgrimages in India called yatras, which I just was on myself in India and just got back. So I, th I think that... Um, discrimination is a very important quality that we need to cultivate in, in hinduism it's called viveka and uh yeah that's a big suggestion especially when we're talking about what we're talking about because it is easy to forget the um the way in which we need to honor these plants these people who are working with the plants uh, uh, beyond respect doesn't even say it, I think. It, it's beyond respect. So I really appreciate your point of view, Nick. Uh, and th this is self-evident through the movie and uh, Sacred Science and the book. Um, so let's talk about how do, how do we, you and I talked before we went on live, about how do, how do we take, because it's something we work with here at the Love Server Member Foundation, the Be Here Now Podcast Network, and Ramdas is is weaving what we've we have gotten in particular these ancient uh, technologies you might say I mean, it's not it's it's kind of a good word uh, mm -hmm. into how we live day to day and some of the things that uh, uh, that come through us that we we can actually put into some action that means something what what is your experience with some of what you've witnessed, experienced uh, in uh, in the jungles of the Amazon, that have really uh, you've brought it back in a way that's really done something for you personally in your day to day life? Well, you and I were talking about this before the call that there's this way of being. In fact, they call it you know the, the healers that I work with down in the jungle they they call it oh, the way of being where there's this you know connection to everything this 
you know, existence in the present moment, this um, emptiness, blank slatedness of, of the psyche so that you can absorb all the information that's going on around you and, and kind of get out of your head and into the present moment. Not much unlike other traditions in the Far East um, and, you know, in here in the, here in the New World. Um, so something when I come, when I come back from the, the jungle, one of the biggest challenges that I have is preserving that way of being. You and I were talking about that before we got on the call. It's just that, you know, you're in that mindset of like, it's very easy to be, to be centered, cool, calm, collected, you know, completely oneness consciousness. There's one thing you wake up and you live and you breathe it. And then you come back here into the modern world where there's all these trappings to kind of get you segmented and fragmented and, you know, tugging you in different directions and definitely playing on, on your ego and um, all this self-importance. So I, through this kind of uh, challenge, you know, this reintegration challenge that I, I tend to experience, I've started trying to figure out how to hold on to that way of being in this crazy world in which we live. And I think that the underlying theme to all of it is that and this is no offense to you, you were just in India and I go, to, I go to the Amazon all the time, but when we go somewhere else to do the work, it's problematic because then you come back here and all your patterns are sitting here waiting for you. You know, your life here is sitting here waiting to greet you. Um, so you go somewhere else and you, and you have this experience and, and it feels like you've, you've finally arrived and then you have to come home and talk to your mom and talk to your dad, and hang out with your kids and, um, and all that stuff that you know, can trigger all these deep things. So something I've been trying to do um, and it's actually been very interesting over the last year and a half of, of really putting this into practice is trying to create this environment and this perspective on this life and on my daily life as being the medicine. Like this is the medicine. What I have in front of me is the medicine. You know, ayahuasca is a medicine. It's something that some people use and some people use way too much. Um, but there is plenty of medicine around you in any given moment. You know, if you're willing to look at that, look at your life that way. And you could even go as far as to say as every life event that happens around you could be, could be taken as a medicine or a poison. You know, um, ethnobotanist Richard Evan Schultes has this famous quote that the difference between a poison and a medicine is dose. So it's almost like you could look at the way that you're interacting with your life and how, and how much you're opening, opening up yourself to what's in front of you and the way that you're actually compartmentalizing that and, and letting it flow through you as either poison or medicine. So I've, I've been really experimenting with and this is, again, none of this is very original. This is stuff that I'm sure could be found in every, every major, um, you know, mystical tradition around the world in some way, shape, or form. But I'm starting to kind of go by this, by this, this mantra of this is all medicine. If I'm here and I'm actually present, then there's no reason to go somewhere else to kind of do the work. I can be doing the work all the time right now. Ramdas wrote a book called Gris for the Mill that fits that whole thing, Nick. So. <laughs> Grist for the mill. I got to write that down. I'm literally writing it down right now. Yeah. <laughs> it is a great book, everybody out there, actually. It's exactly described. Nick described the book just now. <laughs> okay. Uh, I will say one thing, though, you know, having just come back from, from India and being in, you know, the Himalayas and like going to the rainforest and being with, uh, the divine presence embodied in a couple of different people. And um, there's, there is a way, and, and I, I've been going back and forth. I mean, the last six months, I think I've spent almost two in India. So I've really uh, 
which is not normal. I usually go there for a few weeks a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I've been going back and forth forever, and always encounter this the exact thing that you just mentioned, which is first resistance to being uh, back into the pull, you know, where your desire systems, your attachments, your revulsions, they're all like on hyper speed, and, <laughs> you know, and they're coming at you, and so there's resistance, and then ultimately a little bit of surrender creeps in that this this is just you know one side of the coin other side of the coin back and forth until you can't tell it's a spinning thing and uh, but i there is one thing that's true and i think i think you'll agree that there's something that happens when you devote that kind of time to the moment to being completely present i mean and we can say it in a billion different ways but being completely pre- i mean for me there are moments when uh, time and space no longer are there especially being with these shaman uh, they're living in in a world that they have let go of being caught in duality to a great degree so obviously the more advanced the person is then the more that uh, ocean of presence is 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 readily available that that sticks with you even if it's very deep you know each time that i have uh, come back from it's like going to a retreat i mean certainly you can do that by just going for me going to a retreat for a couple of weeks a meditation retreat say in america i always say this uh yeah by the end of it i would come that presence would be there Mm-hmm. A lot of work, though, like 12 hours, 14 hours a day meditating. Do I want to really do that? I'd rather just go plug in with one of these guys. Or uh, in, in the past, for me, it's been this incredible woman saint named Sidima who just passed a couple of months ago. So, uh, yeah, so I'm lazy. So going in and plugging <laughs> in seemed like a much better idea. But you, there is always the the a certain deep essence that... Uh, stays with you and informs the day-to-day. It gives you a little bit more spaciousness. So eventually, as I said, when you first get back, you're really just absolutely hustled by everything and resisting. And then there's a little, that spaciousness creeps in where, yeah, it's okay. It's just okay. And you're not resisting. And, you know, there's much more of a flow. So I think you... Uh, knowing you as much as I know you now, we've had you know a bunch of different talks and so on. That this is uh, is something that is very true for you in terms of what you have brought back after and and bringing these people. The other thing that you have done, which is really uh, to be congratulated, is is the kind of offering that you've provided these people and access beyond getting their health squared away but just in general being able to taste something that really they that is a a completely transformational point in their lives right yeah absolutely i think that the idea of of wandering into a very unknown environment and witnessing the very pure ways of a of an ancient culture that's still very much intact is a wake up call to a lot of people. I think folks start realizing that they too have roots that they've forgotten about. It's really interesting. We, you know, we Americans, especially we're so, um, 
I don't want to say disenfranchised, but we don't really have, we don't really have connections, strong connections to where we're actually from, you know? And so we just kind of, um, you, you know, we're sort of this, uh, this melting pot, social studies kind of class, kind of a term, but, um, you know, we're this melting pot of cultures and sort of, we end up not really resonating or really relating deeply to the ancient ways of our own people. So we look at these other traditions and say, wow, it's amazing. These ancient cultures are so exotic. Well, at one point, every one of us come from, comes from a lineage that practiced folk medicine because that was all there was. And we, we practiced mysticism because that was all there was. Um, so it's really interesting, I think, for, to watch people wander into these cultures, experience what's going on there, and then start asking questions of their own lineages and their own lives and start diving into those parts of themselves that have been so long forgotten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There's something nice you say when we were talking about the relationship to ayahuasca. Just you talk about you're afraid because you lose yourself in the circle, which is can be said uh, in so many different circumstances. Um, I was just in one with this, you could call him a shaman. He's a, a jungle yogi who's gone beyond duality to some extent. I wouldn't know quite far, but <laughs> sitting there is, there is no, you know, this certainly time and space have evaporated. Um, and I, some people came with me to, you know, they, I said, well, you can come along with me. You want to meet somebody like this? Similar to what taking people, uh, a, a little less intense because of the health issues. Mm-hmm. But there was exactly that. You, you're, there was fear that came in because they, they were, some part of that thing that you relate with as your identification like evaporates a little bit. This is without taking ayahuasca mm-hmm. or any drug. And that causes fear. And that's an incredible thing to recognize, is it not? <laughs> I mean, if you can have enough mindfulness and awareness to just see, okay, all right, I, I've held on to this thing so tightly for so long, and where's it going, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a pretty far out thing. It's one thing to see, feel, and hear disturbing things demons, shadows, your own self-talk. Mostly your own self-talk will do it. But tumbling through the darkness, suffering without knowing who or what you are, that's a different kind of terror. It becomes so strong that you have to fight for each breath and there's no escape once it starts. That's great. Great little piece of writing there that really says it all. I love that. Thank you. Oh, yeah, that's that's how it feels. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is how it feels. And the thing I think I want to—I'm um, always trying to clarify with our folks—is that is something that I—that's uh, a experience on uh, working with ayahuasca that I'm writing about there. But I've had similar experiences to that in a sweat lodge. You know, I've had similar experiences to that in um, other types of ceremony. You know, that do not in any way uh, involve a hallucinogenic plant. So I—I'm I, yeah. always trying to reiterate that. And, like you said, you were in just in the presence of someone who was holding that space um, in a certain environment, and the same fears were faced. It's the fear of the unknown, you know, it's yeah. the fear of the unknown that we're so scared of. And I think that it's, I mean, I'm not really ashamed of it anymore because I, I still get triggered by the unknown. I think we all do. And if, I think if you didn't, then there might be something wrong with you. I mean, I think it's just part of how we're wired as human beings. You know, there's a, a little bit of our survival instinct, might be a little bit of what's of that, that, um, you know, that, that, that silver cord that they say that connects your soul or your astral self to your soul, to your physical self. Maybe it's all kind of part of 
that's keeping you here for this particular moment in time that it's kind of um, um again i i'm not i'm not i'm not pretending to know why it happens but i do know that it's always there i've tried to get rid of it for a long time and now i've just learned to forgive myself for sometimes getting stuck on it being human that's jack cornfield <laughs> we're human it's okay that's what jack always says but the yeah, I mean, at some point, uh, this goes to me back to trust. You start to trust trust that that intuitive part of yourself, and and that eventually grows into a kind of faith, where mm-hmm. you don't give a shit about the fact that you have that fear. Or I'll, oh, here's, I mean, I, I think I just said this on another podcast, but I don't care. This bears repeating every damn time because it's so great. So this particular. Uh, this yogi, the Jungle Baba, uh, that I, I've been spending time with on and off and when I go to India. So he, he went to the jungle when he was like a teenager, like 12, 13, 14, something. He took off. That was it. He tried to get away from his parents, a little village in India, and uh, f- they keep catching him, bringing him back. Anyhow, he finally got away, and he went off into a jungle, and he went into a cave to meditate. And he did this on and off for 20 years. So I said, so now you go to this cave, you have, first of all, you have no food, you have no nothing, right? You, uh, you know, there's wild animals and crazy snakes and ins- God knows what in, the, you know, in this environment. So what about fear? And he said, yeah, when I first got there, there yeah, I, I had that feeling but he said then suddenly i realized the uh the cave is ram god ram and hindu thing the uh the wild animals were ram the insects were ram were ram the snakes were ram everything the fear was ram he said <laughs> Right, so that's where you've gone beyond duality, and there's there is only that one thing, and however it manifests, it's it's all Ram, you know, and I think that's a great. Uh, it's obviously yeah, get into a cave for about twenty years, and maybe you know you might come out the other end, uh, or of course it might take a bunch <laughs> of lifetimes for you to even have the thought and the balls to go in there without any food or anything and just sit there. But uh, but I think the practice is a real part of what we're talking about uh, and, and working on ourselves uh, on a day-to-day basis with that realization really addresses fear. And um, now, in, in, in the book, there's something else that uh, is right around uh, what we're talking about. Uh, I, th- I think you, you quote a Buddhist mystic saying, the root of all fear is death. And the goal of all religions is to help humans to overcome that fear, which is very, very true. Uh, Tell the story uh, about uh, Gary that happened when you brought these people to be healed into the Amazon forest. Can you tell that story? Because I think it's a really important story. Sure. Is it? Do you want me to tell the the ultimate story, or do you want me to tell like the entire story of Gary? The ultimate story that. The ultimate story. Yeah. Okay, so so Gary. I only had, want the ultimate here. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I don't. I don't want to waste your time. You know, <laughs> precious. Um, uh, Gary came down. He had 
severe advanced neuroendocrine cancers. And we went to visit him in Garibaldi and, um, you know, he was already in, he was in pretty bad shape. We knew that he, this was going to, this was going to be a, a serious trip for him to make. Um, he didn't have a lot of time um, left and he didn't have an, enough money to continue the treatment. That's essentially his, his situation. He didn't have enough money to continue the treatment. That was, that was sort of barely kind of semi working, not really working that well. So he came down and he had this, you know, trend, I'm just giving a little brief overview. I'm not yeah. gonna, I'll get to the ultimate. No, no, that's good. That's good. That's good. <laughs> um, and uh, he um, had, in a, you know, of all of our patients, you know, we had plenty of patients that were, that were really sick, but he was by far the most um, dire. And mm. he, at the same time, was also by far the fat, the quickest to acclimate to this harsh environment that we were in. Mm. He wow. fell in love with this place immediately. It's the happiest guy that you, you know, you see it in the movie and we talk about it in the book, but the happiest guy, you know, he's just, you know, he's absolutely in heaven. He goes from not being able to, um, to walk very well without a cane to, you know, starting to walk wander on the trails. Um, you know, on, uh, by day, day eight, he, you know, he calls me out to his hut. The huts, by the way, are, are extremely remote. You know, they don't, they're not near each other. They are, um, you know, in their own secluded little pockets of the jungle. So he's out in his little pocket of the jungle, one of the most remote distant huts, because um, he requested that one. And he calls me out and he's like, listen, Nick, I don't want to, I'm not bullshitting you. Like, I usually have severe pain across my midsection because, you know, these tiny tumors form as part of this condition in the intestine and it, these the tumors really really cause a lot of discomfort and he's like i'm usually like just in a severe amount of pain for most of the day and i woke up today and the pain's gone he's like i don't want to, i don't know what to say he's like i think that they might be you know we might be actually getting somewhere here and we were stoked stoked i mean this is like amazing this is insane this is a this is our patient who you know who has you know who's up against the most severe odds of any of them and he is now saying that he's had this transformation. It's like, this is insane. He's like super excited. Um, and um, I remember just having that, that powwow with the, with the team and with some of the shamans and some of the faculty at that point afterwards, like, is this really happening? Like, is he really, like, is this really happening for him? So that night we are kind of backing up our footage and doing all the things you do behind the scenes with the documentary film crew as, you know, the rest of the place is kind of winding down and we're, in our little longhouse that's that's uh, was assigned to us, um, you know, just doing our final nightly activities by candlelight and headlamp and um, all that stuff. Um, and um, and the walkie-talkie kind of squeaks on, and um, and it's uh, it's Cynthia who's one of the um, the aides who's kind of stays on on hand, wanders the trails throughout the night to make sure that the patients are okay. And um, she's like, "You got to come out to hut six immediately." And so that's that was Gary's hut. And so, yeah, I mean, I could tell you the whole unfolding. I basically, but you know, I went out there, we you know, ran out there, and um, and Gary was on the front of his the front stoop of his hut, and um, you know, wearing nothing besides um, a pair of like boxers, I believe, and he was just kind of you know sitting there trying to catch his breath. And Roman and one of the doctors and um, and one of the um, the nurse attendants was out there too with him, and he was just having a hard time breathing. And he he's I remember him like looking up and saying, "Hey, Nick." And like, you know, that was then I'm like, hi, hey, what's going on? What's going on, Gary? It kind of went over and then he like, you know, he said, I just can't, can't breathe. And then like, he like just fell forward and, um, and we caught him and laid him on the ground and 
we sort of went through a series of attempts at resuscitation. Um, and ultimately one of the shamans stepped forward and was like, he's gone, he's gone. Let's bring him inside to his, let's bring him inside his hut. And I would even say, you know, there's, there's obviously a sense of desperation on our side, trying to, an urgency, you know, sense of um, panic and, you know, everyone's doing the right thing. Everything's being done perfectly textbook, but this, the mentality when you're trying to save somebody's life is pretty, it's pretty urgent. Um, it's pretty, uh, uh, I don't want to say panicky because that, that kind of, that, that isn't really honoring the way that it felt, but it, it's just that there's, there's something very serious. There's something, you know, you're, there's, it's a stressful environment. Um, but these shamans are just standing there, you know, standing around watching and like, you know, they're, they're helping. But then once he's gone, it's not like this, this thing has happened. We've been defeated by, you know, mortality or something like that. It's, they were like, well, he's gone now. Now let's move his body into the, into the hut because this is the next thing we should do. And I just remember that experience of like picking him up, putting him, bringing him inside of his hut and his candles lit all around and, us just watching, you know, his body for a while, you know, and by candlelight in silence. And there was just this amazing thing that sort of transpired that I can't quite put words to that. I, I think a lot of people listening probably have experienced when they've been with loved ones who have passed away, where there's just that moment where there's still something there, even though they're not breathing anymore, there's still something there, even though their heart no longer works. And then there's this thing that is, you know, impossible to describe that just happens where, you know, there's this departure of a soul out of the body that everyone in this situation, probably because the shamans were holding it down, there was this insane, like, departure, soul departure that happened in front of us. And it was incredible. And it was the people, everyone started smiling as they witnessed it. It was this beautiful thing. It was not um, something to be, um, mourned necessarily in that moment it was something that was just we were witnessing something truly incredible almost like witnessing a child coming into the world but the other way around and it was it just completely turned it it transformed any any everything or any remaining um stagnating beliefs i had around death and mortality it really was just this this uh, incredible thing to behold mm, amazing mm. Mm. yeah it's such a far-out experience to read and 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 you'd go on to talk about how westerners uh, shelter ourselves from death and dying at any expense oh man <laughs> i mean it's pretty far out isn't it i mean because of course i've seen a ton of that being in india so much mm-hmm. and the attitude is just so way way different from us i mean uh, it's just a uh, an amazing a juxtaposition between the way that we live and the way that we could live. Mm-hmm. And and look at you. You went and this happened. Uh, that's got to be one of the most profound turnarounds uh, dir- of direct experience related to to death and mm-hmm. uh, our fear. I mean, we, we're actually doing a, um, a retreat in Maui uh, coming up in a month or less than a month, actually, uh, with Ram Das Krishnas. We're going to have Roshi Joan Halifax there and Frank Ostaseski and Robert Thurman, you know, all of them deep experts with Ram Das on, on that process. And it's called No Death, No Fear. It's what we're talking about right now. And uh, the, I, uh, just a matter of um, 
I mean, your direct experience would be, we'd love for everyone to have that direct experience. Mm-hmm. God, it would go so far to changing the fear factor. Uh, by the way, that no death, no fear is Thich Nhat Hanh, and he wrote a book around that, and which people definitely get that book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, and there's some people in this in this culture like Ramdas that has put a lot of work into taking the just changing conceptually our our point of view around death and dying and uh, the fear of it is uh so i this this from your book is uh, to me one of the great things in the book because um you can tell that your relationship with that direct experience is so real i just love it it's really really great yeah it's uh it kind of led to a lot i mean that that idea of no death no fear leads leads to a lot of questions you know and you start really getting down to the root of all fear of all concern I mean, I I might be mistaken, but for me, it seems like most of my concerns come down to fear of um, not abandonment so much. I guess sometimes fear of abandonment, a fear of of exclusion, or um, or uh, yeah, fear of death itself. If you're like actually on a on a treacherous mountain hike, we talk about that a little bit in the book. And it was actually fear of dying by you know just right in front of you. But there's also you know, what happens if I, you know, fear of failure can be linked to fear of dying. Because if you think about a, na- a creature that fails in the wild, you know, that they're, you know, they're, they're, they're not a good hunter. They're not a good provider. They're not, they're, they can be um, relegated, let's just say, by their tribe and kind of abandoned to sort of die out in the middle of nature, which really does all end up in being a fear of death. I mean, you know, abandonment really is still a fear of death, you know, um, fear of, um, of uh, alone, being alone. It's, it's fear of death. I mean, in a way, because you know, the idea is like you know we're 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 a pack, we're a tribe mentality. You know, um, being being alone really does feel very close to death because you theoretically can't provide for yourself if you don't have other folks to support you in a community to kind of rely upon. So it's really interesting when you kind of start tracing out the, these fears to what they ultimately represent. Yeah, uh, there's a great quote in the book. Actually, I'm just looking for. It. I don't know if I'll find it. Uh, just around that. Where the hell is this? I love that you have my book in your hand and you're flipping through it. I wish I had, I've, I've got my computer sitting on one right now. That's what I'm supposed to be doing, right? <laughs> uh, uh, anyhow, it is, it is about, I can't find it right now, but it is about uh, w- what we do to ourselves in relation to separation and isolation and um, creating the, the, the us and them. Of course, the us and them that's going on in our culture right now is really pretty uh, horrendous. Here it is. It's from San- Sandra Ingerman, who I've never heard of. What? You don't know Sandra Ingerman? I have to introduce no. you to Ingerman. Yeah, please. Yeah. We are not separate. Rather, we are connected to one source and to a web of life. Imagine a hand where one of the fingers drops to the floor and thinks it can have an independent life without being connected to the body. That is what is happening today. (laughs) So good. Sure is. Humankind is acting like separate fingers that have forgotten the connection to the original (laughs) source of life. So good. So that's the fear of death. I mean, that that when we we are so convinced that we are separate, that there's no way that you wouldn't be afraid of being completely, as you say, abandoned and isolated. 
mm-hmm. as we pass into uh, to the mystery. And that's the other thing is, you know, uh, Roshi Halifax talks a lot about honoring that mystery is extraordinarily important mm-hmm. instead of, uh, you know, shying away from it. Yeah. You know what? You, you just you just kind of you just kind of triggered me because I realized I've been doing something lately that is like my, my next little bit of work. Let's just call it that mm. where I when I'm in public places, like in a, in a grocery store, I don't always like acknowledge the person who's walking down the aisle. You know, I'll, I'll be like, you know, in front of me, you know, I'll just be like, oh, I'm just, I don't want to engage with that person. Yeah. Uh, because, because I'm in my own thing and I just don't want to. And I don't even know, they might not be nice. You know, blah, blah, blah. like I've been noticing these weird conspicuous things. I just moved to Boulder. Maybe it's because I just moved to a new place, but it's, <laughs> it, is, it is that I and thou, like that separation yeah. kind of the yeah. thing where it's like, you are not me. No, you're clearly something that's not me. And you're, I just know I you know, looking at you and smiling and just kind of like giving you some kind of a, kind of you know sign that i i recognize and appreciate your existence is yeah. too much. so it's like thank you because I, I just got that that i'm behaving like a finger that's falling off the hand when I'm <laughs> you know in india one of the great things they do at least in the rural places you know not quite even like when you're in delhi or bombay mumbai uh it's like if i'm walking in the himalayan foothills and i just somebody's coming from the other direction jesiara Hare Krishna, you know, whatever. It depending on where you are is who you focus on. Yeah. But, but everybody, or it's just Namaste, you know, which has become like a stupid ass Coke commercial kind of a thing in America. Amazing. Oh God. Uh, but yeah, just that breaks through everything in one fell swoop. In one moment, mm-hmm. you are on a different level with that person. You are not in our separate things. We, we're in the divine presence, you know, sitara. Mm-hmm. And uh, just the, the principle, male-female principle. Uh, so, yeah, that makes it a little bit easier. Um, yeah, another quote, you, you got some great quotes in this book, which j- just talks to, speaks to what we're talking about. Walking, I am listening to a deeper way. Suddenly all my ancestors are behind me. Be still, they say, watch and listen. You are the result of the love of thousands. <laughs> Linda Hogan. So good. Chickasaw Nation writer. I don't know her either. That's fantastic. There are some extraordinary, extraordinary people that I, I come across just in the research. I've never heard of before. You'll be, oh, reading, really? you'll be reading an academic text or you'll be reading, you know, just whatever, whatever one of the hundreds of books that have been written, but never really, you know, that are no longer in publication. You're like, who is this person? They were clearly connected to, <laughs> they were clearly connected to something much deeper than, yeah. than uh, what's being yeah. talked about. Yeah. And I wish we had more, um, it's not more access because anybody can have access. I wish we would honor them more the way that I'm used to when I go to the East, the way they honor wise people, teachers. Uh, and unfortunately, as modern times have taken over India as well, there's so many charlatans that it's very difficult for people to, to really connect with, with uh, a pure emanation of the divine presence. However, you know, they don't, need be, they don't need to be enlightened, but they need to be putting themselves second, not mm-hmm. first. And that's, that sounds easy, but it, you know, very few people do that. Oh my gosh. Yeah, which is really what we're talking about here in the work that you're doing. 
uh, and what we uh, what we have become, we who have been with Ramdas and been to India and been with Neem Karoli Baba, uh, you know, who said, and there's something in here about uh, feeding people. It's a great other quote, uh, but someone asked them, "Okay, how do I how do I raise my Kundalini so that I can become enlightened?" <laughs> you know what he said? Feed people. So good. Right. So it was always that. Serve mm-hmm. people, which is why this is called Love Serve Remember Foundation. So just thinking of that, Nick, uh, just the idea of getting out of ourselves and as a first step, a long way t- to uh, to go, but as a first step to really um, cutting through the feeling of separation that we have, most of us, a lot of the time. Um, and, and you talk about uh, rewiring our reality, and I love that, uh, that phrase. What, let's talk about from your point of view and your experiences through going to the Amazon and, and being back and the kind of work you're doing. Uh, how, how have you started to rewire uh, your reality? based on on these kinds of incredible experiences in your life so when you look when you watch the movie when you look at what goes on in these cultures the most uh, the shiniest object that you could sort of focus on is the shaman medicine man medicine woman and these really earth-shattering magic potions that they sometimes administer that you know give you a really serious experience overnight I think that's sort of the illusion. I mean, it's all part of the illusion. Um, when you look deeper into what's going on, if you want to look at what we did with our patients in our movie and in the book, it's much more, um, it's less exciting than that. It's much more of a daily practice. So um, one of the most important things I think that happened to to us and some one of the most cathartic things for our for our patients was just removing every device, every bit of distraction they could pour themselves into. And I think we might've gone into this in our last conversation, so I won't, I won't hang here too long, but in terms of what I do in my own life to help, you know, maintain that connectedness, that way of being is um, very limited access to devices on a regular basis. We don't, I don't really do much besides my work, you know, I do my work and then I'm with my family for the most part. So, I mean, it sounds, it sounds boring, but <clears throat> there isn't um, a lot of news in my life. You know, I don't, I don't consume like news on a regular basis. I'm not sucked into the Trump thing. I couldn't tell you what happened with Trump over the last 24 hours. I try to stay connected to what's the big things that are happening over the course of, you know, a month, you know, but I mean, I'm not going to be able to re- reiterate to you or if it, I'm not going to be able to get regurgitate, you know, what just happened, the latest thing that everyone is kind of texting and tweeting about. Um, again, I'm not, I'm just telling you what I do. I'm not saying that anything is right or wrong, but I am not connected to that kind of stuff. I'm connected to my family. I'm really doing a lot with my sons right now. You know, I've got two little boys and now we are spending a lot of time understanding the natural environment around us, going hiking in the mountains, making food together. And then I work my butt off for eight hours and then I go back to that. (laughs) So I do it. I don't do, I have the distractions I have are pretty much my laptop and the, the books I'm reading for research, but I try to keep that um, to an eight hour window. And the rest of the time is just me being with my family and being connected to what's going on around um, you, my environment. And you really don't miss hearing all of the details of Mr. Trump. 
How how could you possibly live? How can you live? It's so weird. It's so weird it's, because I I because because I am plugged from it, but my but but my family is still is still so plugged in. Oh, really? and, I, and, and and I and I, and they want to kind of have it as part of our conversation. And yeah. I, I this, at some point the people and you know some people I think the fear about unplugging is that you're not going to be able to have this conversation with the people anymore. And this is sort of like part of the you know demonstration of your your intelligence and your 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 um, responsibility as an adult. But at some point when you stop knowing what's going on, people stop talking to you about it. <laughs> People don't. People know they, that calling me and talking to me about current events, you know, is not really going to get them anywhere. And again, I'm not saying I'm not necessarily advocating for everyone doing this. This is just my thing. I'm experimenting with. I have. No, that's bullshit. If you want to rewire your reality, folks out there, cut that news cycle right off. Where you know you're gonna. I mean, I'm talking to myself, by the way. Mm -hmm. Okay, I have not done that. All well, I did that when I went to India. I was. I didn't even. I thought, wow, this is another world. I, this completely. <laughs> pristine it's like going into a pristine forest <laughs> you know but uh yeah yeah re rewire that's um, one great way to start rewiring and i love it, that there are these conspicuous things that we do you know and when you step out of it you come back in like you just are you're reintegrating right now and there's and things that you have been engaged in things that we do culturally become far more conspicuous and you have a very precious little window of time during that reintegration period to write those things down and to make sure you remember that they're conspicuous. Yeah, right. After a while, they're not conspicuous anymore. They're just part no. of it. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> News, it's like the wallpaper. <laughs> yeah, it's just the wallpaper. <laughs> just yeah. the wallpaper, exactly. It's so the news, the news and the addiction to news and the fact that every single thing that pops up, you know, in the in news, you know, if you if I start looking, because I'll I'll sometimes look for it. I'll be like, okay, you know, I should probably find out, make sure the world's still not on fire. And I look, I'll go online and every news headline is fear. It's all fear. It's fear of sex. And I'm like, this is so, I mean, I hate to say it, but I, because I hate the word, but it's so freaking cliche. It's like what we were talking about in the early 1980s, the movie, the, the movie, the network that came out. Yeah, this is yeah, so yeah. old. It's just so obvious. Like, is this yeah. really what it is? It's fear and sex, fear and greed. Um, and, and it's every single one. And I'm like, this is just, wow, this is what's going on right now. Um, so that becomes very conspicuous. And so, yeah, I've just, I just unplugged it and my wife followed suit and we are now the, the couple at cocktail parties that might be dull because we can't talk about what happened with <laughs> the, the, um, the Kardashian. Um, the other thing that we do that I do a lot is, and this is hard, this is harder is I grew up, I told, I grew up telling a lot of white lies. And I think that I say that I, I used to be uh, ashamed saying that until I realized that everybody tells white lies and they're such an amazing <laughs> indicator of things that are going on underneath the hood. Like, I mean, it happens all the time. I have friends, you know, I had this conversation with somebody who admitted it to me on Saturday because you ha open up the window to that. And people are like, they feel comfortable telling you that they told you a white lie about their location. It's like my wife will call me and she'll be like, hey, um, you know, where are you? You were supposed to be home 10 minutes ago. I'm tempted to tell her that I'm going to be home in two minutes, even though I know it's 10. It's a white lie. Um, so I'm trying, I, I tune into these little white lies and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Like so I guess one thing is taking away distractions. The other thing is looking for beacons or little, um, uh, or little alarm bells that are going on in your reality. Not necessarily because things are, are crashing to a screeching halt, but just little things that are like usually kind of a little sprout on the surface that needs to be followed down to its root that, that, that will lead to some great piece of work mm. that might be painful to handle in the moment, um, but will ultimately help you um, you know, weed your inner garden, so to speak, and, mm -hmm. you know, and harvest a much nicer crop um, come harvest time. Yeah, well, rewire our reality. Well, try telling the truth day to day. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
okay? And have, <laughs> you know, so awareness and mindfulness, by the way, is, is the root of a great practice because you can see your motivations if you oh, really yeah. get yourself. Uh, oh, yeah. You do need to have a, a bit of a meditative practice because you got to get to a point where you're out of your mind and you're not completely at the beck and call of that monkey mind. Uh, but mm -hmm. yeah, try telling the truth. Maharaji told Ramdas, tell the truth, love everyone, and tell the truth. He said, oh, I can't love everyone. I don't love anyone, everyone. So that's the truth. <laughs> 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 oh conundrum That's for sure yeah, right. oh god can, can i can i toss another one your way just while we're on yeah. it just real yeah, quick yeah. another thing that i'm 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 on like the prowl for this one these days and um and you can tell by by the way i speak that i'm by no means a guru i'm just a, i'm just an average white dude from Connecticut trying to make <laughs> my life work using some ancient practices to kind of just um achieve some some semblance of uh of presence and, and peace and awareness in the moment um <laughs> So another question, another thing I do a lot is I, these days very big is asking myself, where is the one really hard, hard conversation that I haven't had with someone else? Where's the one conversation that needs to be had that I'm avoiding like the plague? Cause I do it. And again, I, I have this thing where I think I'm the only one I write. Like I really, I wrote that book and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm writing all this stuff about me. And like, and then everyone's like, no, this, I do all this stuff too. I have the same thing. It's human condition. We have conversations we don't want to have because they're painful. Well, where is that conversation? Which one is it? Like even right now, I'm like, oh yeah, which one is it? Because I've I've been having a lot of them lately, and it's great. It just feels like this like you have them, and it hurts when it's. But usually, it's not as bad as you think it's going to be. And then sometimes there's this amazing connection that happens during the hard conversation. You the other person is allowed to then tell you how they feel, and then you feel you feel even more love for them because you established this this link and this um, mm. this trust and this space mm. safe space. Um, but it's hard. We avoid it like the plague. We avoid, and I'm not sure we could dive right into why we do that, but we do it with family members, with friends, with colleagues. Um, where is the one conversation that I have not had that needs to be had that I know is going to probably hurt, or at least feels like it's going to hurt. Um, and what do I need to do to get that conversation mm -hmm. on the, on the, uh, the roster for, for this week or for yeah. even today? Yeah. Yeah. More good fodder for rewire for sure. For sure. Just rewire. Great Nick. No? Yeah. Um, and uh, I would say that this, that everything that we've been talking about and everything you represent through the book and your life is uh, very much about commitment, commitment to just changing your insides. And, and the, the, that's the only, you know, if we can't change that, we have no chance at helping anybody mm -hmm. you know, change our hearts, change our guts and rewire our reality whatever which way you want to put it and there there comes a point where you realize which is an, another nice quote from your book which we can kind of end by from a and it's by Fran, franz kafka a kafka-esque quote mm -hmm. uh, from a certain point onward there is no longer any turning back that is the point that must be reached and if everybody out there would realize that once you bring this kind of awareness and, you know, really looking at yourself inside and looking at all of these motivations and looking to want to change, to rewire, uh, once you realize that that's happening and that has been happening, you can, it, nothing can ever, you can't fall off at that point. You just can't mm -hmm. because you just don't want to become a schmuck again, basically. <laughs> <laughs> you just... You, you want to do this and you start to realize it's about 
you're not just doing it for yourself, but you're doing it for whoever's around you and, and to the bigger world at large. Uh, so that one day you can actually maybe watch one piece of news and see uh, President Trump and be able to send love. That mm-hmm. may happen one day, but for the moment, probably best not to watch any news because <laughs> it's not going to happen that easy. <laughs> I, love, oh, I, love, I, love the, I love the idea of burning, burning your bridges. You know, there's like all kinds of, um, there's all kinds of burn the bridges behind you because then all you can do is walk forward. You know, yeah. I mean, it's a terrible, a terrible sort of an example of this because it sort of run, flies in the face of, of the subject matter a little bit, but it's kind of, you know, it's a beautiful black and white kind of a situation is, um, you know, the, the famous quote by, um, was it Cortez who said, burn the ships, you know, because his, he, he, they basically, him and the conquistadors landed on, um, landed on the shores and he wanted to make sure that no one was going to turn around. You know, no one was going to leave. There was no option besides to move forward. Uh-huh. Now, obviously, terrible things happen because of that. But the idea behind it is interesting. It's like, you know, when you burn the bridges behind you, all you can do is step forward. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying that you should necessarily, you know, um, uh, take all, all options away from yourself. But the idea of stepping forward into the unknown and not, and not looking back. I mean, what can you do to make sure you're going to commit to the path? You were saying before about how this whole thing is about turning your insides out and cleaning, cleaning things up. I mean, it's interesting. It, it is that way. Um, and I think a big, a big tool for me on, the, on that path has been self-forgiveness. Like we, I've said it before, mm-hmm. like, how do you forgive yourself when you fall off? Invariably, we all do. We all do things that, will, that are not necessarily, you know, um, in accordance with our highest ideals. Yeah. And, and especially with children. I think you and I might have talked about this before. You know, when you have children and you know one of the biggest hang-ups for me has been you know and it's, i'm kind of over it at this point but for a while was you know man i thought i'd be better at this you know wow i thought i was going to be so much better at this and it just turns into this beautiful opportunity for self-forgiveness and it just kind of applies to all the things we've been talking about it's like you're yeah. not going to be perfect you're going to be human and ultimately yep. you just got to yep. learn how to forgive yourself and keep on moving yeah absolutely and uh, without that you can't forget anybody else you can't you can't have that tough talk with anybody that you've wanted to have mm-hmm. so yeah it all starts with with ourselves it really does sacred science the sacred science an ancient healing path for the modern world nick polizzi you can get that anywhere anytime right now go to amazon you can get it there i'm sure uh and you can go to sacredscience.com dot mm-hmm. com the the sacred science Do you the sacred so- Actually, if they go to thesacredscience.com forward slash new book, they'll get the book and also a ton of bonuses. Oh, okay. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) And join, you know, get on the mail list. And Nick does all kinds of great things. And he's got quite a wonderful community there that uh, Ram Dass and Love Serve we're hooked up with and we do stuff together. So I appreciate you being here, Nick. Loved you. Yeah. Honored. Honored what you do. Yeah. Thank so you, great. man. Likewise, we're you know this is one of those things. It's a you know just being able to hang out and, and chat with you is is a true honor. Well, it's a gift that we can do this. So I'm uh, I'm really happy. And uh, um, oh, by the way, Nick is doing stuff on on Be Here Now Network, uh, and uh, we he just uh, we he's doing a podcast and the guest podcast was just done. Who did you do it with? 
uh, Dennis McKenna. Dennis McKenna. Oh, Dennis. Brother. Dennis. Yeah. The brother of the, of the yeah, famous no. Terrence McKenna, but also just an incredible human being himself. Yeah. Yes. You know, he, he's, he's an ethnopharmacologist. He can, he has this new, wow. He has this new work he's putting out right now. It's all about mm -hmm. the co-evolution of humans and plants. It, honestly, if I, if I could just sit in a room and read, read his books for, you know, like, like a week straight, there's enough material there to keep you enthralled. And I uh, really make, really makes a very scientific and also a sacred spiritual case for plant intelligence um, mm. and, and how they basically set the stage for us. Mm. Uh, us vertebrates and are still probably the ones who are calling the shots, even though we don't realize it. Yeah. Now Dennis is, is, uh, is great. We did something with him a few, a couple of years ago. Uh, so yeah. So Nick is, uh, gonna, uh, from time to time, he's going to give us, uh, cause he talks to some really great people and, uh, we're happy to put it out on be here now network. So thanks again, Nick Polizzi. And we shall see you next week on Mind Rolling. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. <laughs>